bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. Let me just save you the, the tweets and the, the emails. Uh, as Eric Bilstadt was just telling you, apparently the, metro, the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewage District has, is already engaged in, in some dumping. Um, and, and whenever this happens, I always get the email saying, oh, isn't this terrible and stuff? And, and yeah, it is. But it's not the fault of the MMSD. I've been saying this for the 20-plus years I have been on the radio. The problem is we have a flawed system. And this goes back decades and decades to when we made the decision to build the deep tunnel. Instead of separating the combined sewers from the sanitary sewers, um, years and years ago in Milwaukee and in parts of Shorewood, because the concern was it would cost too much money, what we decided to do is we decided to build this giant holding tank, the deep tunnel. The problem is you cannot build the deep tunnel deep enough to deal with heavy rainfalls, especially, you know, after you've also had snow melt. It, it's just, it's a problem. So you have this flawed system. Whenever I look at all the reports that say, well, you know, because we built the deep tunnel, that we, we stopped, you know, X amount of, of sewage from going into the lake. Well, yeah, that's true. But if we would have looked at the alternative, which was instead of building the deep tunnel, maybe separating the combined sewers and seeing, you know, how much that would have stopped go stuff uh, the need to dump. That that's what you really have to look at. So yes, there has been dumping today, but I don't fault MMSD because the alternative to not dumping is to have uh, again sewage back up in people's basements, and you cannot have that. So. I'm not one of these people that criticizes MMSD when it comes to dumping. I criticized the politicians decades ago who made the decision, uh, again, to build the deep tunnel. It was a flawed, at least in my opinion, decision from the beginning, and we continue to live with that flawed decision year after year after year. Did they dump today? Yeah, apparently. How much did they dump? We don't know yet. But they dumped because if they didn't, you'd have all sorts of sewer backups into people's basements, which is, in fact, unacceptable. It's just we are living with a decision that was bad from decades ago and continues to be bad to this day. Speaking of decisions, one of the breaking news stories is, as rumored for the last several weeks, one of the owners of the Bucks, Mark Lazary, who is about a quarter owner, I think they're, they're a little bit quiet on the details, but Mark Lazary, who was one of the people who bought in and purchased the Bucks from Herb Cole in 2014, has apparently agreed to sell his share of the Bucks. Um, and I assume this needs to be approved by the NBA, but I don't think there's going to be any problem with that. He's going to be selling this to the guy who owns, his name is Jimmy Haslam and the Haslam Sports Group, and they own a professional soccer team in Columbus, Ohio, and they own the Cleveland Browns. So the interesting thing, though, about this story, and, and this is this is my takeaway for sports franchises, I am never sympathetic to owners of sports franchises who plead poverty. Oh, we're a small market team or we're a medium market team, so we can't do this. We can't afford to spend big money to re-sign this player, or we have to let that player go. I've never been sympathetic to that, and here is why. All right, the Bucks were sold in 2014 to the new ownership group. And by the way, let me say this at the outset. I, I think the new the ownership of the Bucks, since it was purchased from Herb Cole, I think they have done everything right. They have built the Bucks into an NBA powerhouse. Um, they have managed to figure out a way to develop uh, Giannis and keep him happy in Milwaukee. Uh, they, they've won a world championship, and they might very well win a world championship you know, this year. So they've done everything, and they've been willing to spend money. The Bucks payroll is well into the area of, like, with the luxury tax. So, I mean, they, they have spared no expense 
in making sure that the Bucks are competitive. And we, as basketball fans, are very fortunate to have the Bucks ownership group. So I have no criticism at all in that regard. But this underscores the point, whether it's basketball or football or baseball, I have no sympathy, sympathy when ownership groups plead poverty. Here's why. The Bucks were purchased in 2014 for from Herb Cole for $540 million. But Herb Cole agreed to kick in $100 million so if the team agreed to stay in Milwaukee. So the real purchase price was about $440 million. Now, now follow me on this. The reports are that Mark Lazary owns a 25% stake in the Bucks. Maybe that's a little more. Maybe it's a little less. But let's just work with the approximates. So $440 million, 25%. That's an investment in 2014 of $110 million, right? Now, maybe it was a little less, maybe it was a little more, but just for the sake of my example, $110 million in 2024. According to published reports in The Athletic, the valuation of the bucks that this purchase was based on was $3.5 billion, $3.5 billion. So a team that was purchased for $440 million nine years ago now has a valuation of $3.5 billion. Owning sports franchises is a license to print money. So again, let's work again with, with these numbers. They, they might be slightly different at the end of the game, but you get my point. So Lazary buys the Bucks into the Bucks, twenty five percent ownership share nine years ago, twenty fourteen. Let's say it's one hundred ten million dollars, right? The, if the valuation, if these reports are correct, the valuation is three point five billion. Twenty five percent, a twenty five percent share translates into roughly eight hundred and seventy million dollars. Now, again, it, it might be a little bit less. It, it might be 800 million. It might be 900 million. So, you know, what, what's 20, 30, 40 million between friends? But the point is, clearly, you take an investment that's like 110 million, and now nine years later, it's 870 million. If you just, you know, you, use the numbers I'm using, that's a pretty darn good return on investment going from, you know, ha- having $8 return on every dollar you invested. So, again, I don't begrudge anybody any money. I think that that's super that Mark Lazarus, I think he's done everything he could possibly do as an owner. I think that's a great sort of thing. And I don't begrudge him making money. But whenever I hear owners saying, well, we don't have the money to do this or that or the other thing, I, I, always, I always call bull on that because the value of professional sports nowadays it's not the year to year operation it's that the value of the franchises increases exponentially and so you're going to get your payoff when you end up selling and to me the idea of well you know it's going to cost us money to keep this player or that player or whatever to me that that's that's the same argument as saying okay you've got a house you bought the house for 200,000 you can sell the house for a million, but you've had to put a new roof on the house somewhere along the way or a new water heater or a new furnace to, to keep it up. You're, you're going to get your money out of it at the end. So I, I, I don't begrudge Mark Lazary the profit. It's just this is a classic example of when owners say, well, gee, we're, we're not sure we've got the money to do this or that or the other thing. I always say nuts to that. There, there's plenty of money because the pot at the end of the rainbow is when you ultimately sell. Let's take a very quick break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. So very glad to have you with us. All right. The news from Saturday night in West Dallas, not good. Two boys shot. 56th and Lincoln in West Dallas last Saturday night about 9 o'clock. One of them, a 12-year-old boy, dies of gunshot wounds at the scene. Now, when the story first came out, I think there were a lot of questions. There's there's a neighborhood tavern called the Buggin' Out, B-U-G-N-O-U-T, Buggin' Out. And the, the kids were apparently at a birthday party there 
on Saturday night when when gunfire ended up breaking out. And of course, the obvious question when I first heard the story is, what what are what are twelve year old kids? What what are they doing at at a what's going on with a birthday party at this bar? Well, as it turns out, here, here's the way it works. This is a two story building. The first level is the bar. So you and I've seen the picture of this. You walk in through like the front door. And then there's a wall and there's another door that you have to go into to go into the bar. There's also stairs that you go up. So you don't go into the bar to go upstairs. You go up these stairs and there's a second room that's upstairs. There's like a hall. And apparently the owner rents this out as as like a party room. So it's not in the bar and there's no age restrictions on this at all it's just it's it's an area that's used above the bar for a party room which explains i guess why you know there was a, a kids a party it was a 17 year old's birthday party at at the bar so we, we don't have all the details on this yet but it seems like somebody brought a firearm to the bar to the to the party went upstairs there's no metal detectors or anything there's i've seen some reports say that some of the parents might have been checking bags but there was no it, there, there was no like formal security because it's a 17 year old's birthday party and then what happened is an unknown suspect apparently pulled out a gun there were shots and you've probably all seen the video you got people running all over trying to scatter i was looking at a couple of the televised reports of this and a couple of the neighbors were kind of extremely upset about this, understandably so, because, you know, one of the kids who was shot ended up in the, the woman's front yard. She said, I, I've got kids. This is very, very, very traumatizing. And the neighbor's takeaway was that this, you got to close this bar. You, you just have to close this bar. How could this go on? I also saw an interview with the woman who owns the bar, and she she's showing this. She says, well, look, we, we rent out the upstairs area. That's a hall. You're it's not like you have kids that are coming into the bar. We just make extra money by renting this out upstairs, and it's just it's where we have birthday parties or, or whatever it might be. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I admit my initial reaction to this story was, you know, who, who, has, who has a birthday party at, at a bar? And what were the kids doing inside the bar? Well, the kids weren't inside the bar. The kids were in this, this upstairs area. Now, they didn't have metal detectors or anything like that, but it was just, it was just, it was a hall or in the upstairs area that they rent out for these different things. And I guess as I try to think about it, I appreciate why the neighbor is upset about, you know, what ended up happening. But at the same time, I guess my take on this is, I don't see this as the bar owner's fault. It's not like, unless there's more evidence that comes out that says that there were underage kids going in the bar or something, if if the story is what I think the story is, that this was, again, just a, a, a hall that she rents out that people you know were coming into and somebody brought in a gun or something like that, this, unless we are now going to say... Every hall that has that rents out spaces for birthday parties or graduation parties or whatever has to put in metal detectors or bouncers on kids' parties. I, I don't I don't see what it is, if anything, that the owner of the bar could have done. I mean, the owner of the bar is like, hey, these people go up these stairs, and this is where we were. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So so here's my question: horrible story, and obviously. The people that you want to hold responsible for this are, you know, whoever it was that brought the gun to the place and, and started shooting. I mean, that's where the accountability is. But do you think some of this is on the owner of the tavern? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. So very glad to have you with us. All right, um, I, this horrible shooting, twelve year old shot, birthday party above a tavern, and it turns out it wasn't at the tavern. It was the the, the hall that is above the tavern, which to me kind of changes the dynamic. Some of the neighbors are on TV saying, "I hope they close down this tavern." I, I guess I just look at this and say, I don't see this as being the tavern owner's fault. Rome in Wauwatosa. Rome, you're on WTMJ. Yes, thanks for taking my call. I have sure. two takes on this. One, uh, the tavern owner, uh, there's two different things with this. 
one, uh, as a tavern owner, a person is just trying to do business, trying to make a buck. I don't see where she did anything wrong as long as she has insurance uh, to cover her. Uh, you can't expect, you know, people to have, you know, armed security and things at a, at a 17-year-old's party. Uh, I think another take on this is that uh, we have to look at the fact that uh, all of the information is not in. They have not actually said whether the person was shot inside the establishment or is something that happened outside. The owner actually has stated that it was outside the establishment. I think that that should have something to do with it, too, because, you know, if those happened outside the establishment, then the owner definitely has nothing to do with it. Now, yeah, and while we're here talking about this, one thing that has to happen, Jeff, is that people got to realize that there are a lot of people that have guns that shouldn't have guns. I'm not here bashing the gun industry. I have a gun. I've been a, a, loyal, a, a, a loyal gun owner, and I do the right thing. But there are a lot of people that have access to guns now based on the fact that you can go over to Illinois, you can go from Illinois into Indiana or up to Michigan or right over to Waukesha on any given weekend, and there's a gun show where you can go in and purchase a gun. So we got to work on those things. I'm not saying take anybody's guns away. I'm saying let's well, take thanks. those laws up. Right. Thanks for the call. I, well, I, I appreciate it. I mean, th- and that's, of course, a different conversation. A number of texters are making the points about how, you know, why, why do you bring a gun to, you know, a, a kid's birthday party or, or in that area? And I think that's a fair question. One of our texters says, Jeff, I grew up in Milwaukee in the 70s and 80s, and it was very common as a youth to attend birthday parties and wedding receptions in taverns with absolutely no issues. Now, here's an interesting text, though, that presents the flip side, and I, I just I don't agree with it. Jeff, it always takes a tragedy um, for the light to go on. Of course, the owner should have had metal detectors at this hall, given the state of the world. Would have, could have, should have, doesn't help after a kid is dead. Well, let, okay, let me think about that. Is that what we're really saying? And are we really saying that every time that you have a hall, a, a banquet hall or whatever, you have to have metal detectors for people to go into? I mean, is is that really our takeaway from this? And look, th- this is a tragedy. You got a 12-year-old kid that's dead, and right, it, we don't know for sure whether the shooting was inside or was outside or whatever. But regardless, it's do, have we gotten to this point in this world where every time we're going to go for all those, for all the different places that are out there that, that cater to banquets or whatever, or that cater to birthday parties or that cater to wedding receptions or whatever, that everywhere, if you're in West Dallas or you're in Milwaukee or you're in, I don't know, fill in the blank, Glendale or Fox Point or whatever, you now have to an expectation that there's going to be metal detectors that you have to go through. And, and maybe we're coming to that point. But at this point in time, I'm not prepared to I'm not prepared to rip on the owner. Now, maybe more will come out. Maybe it'll turn out that they've had multiple problems like that before. I'm not sure that that's the case. I don't think that that's the case. But maybe that's going to change the dynamic. But I just don't think it's fair to say to the owners of these places that you have to anticipate that, all right, you're, you're going to have a 17-year-old birthday party in a hall, and you need to have metal detectors that are there. And again, I, I, that, I'm not even sure that that would have ended up stopping this. The problem is, the problem is the wrong people have guns, and they are willing to use it. And until we are willing to hold people accountable for that, well, I, I think we're going to have to just recognize that this is inevitable. That's why I think there needs to be consequences for people who possess firearms when they shouldn't. And my guess is when they catch the person that did this, it's going to turn out that he or she shouldn't have had a gun in the first place. All right, WTMJ breaking news time is 12.30 p.m. So, very glad to have you with us. Well, it's a comic strip that probably won't be published, at least in too many newspapers, um, by the end of the week. It's the comic strip Dilbert, and maybe you are familiar with it. Dilbert, it, it started in 1989, and the publisher, the, 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 column, the cartoonist who does this, his name is Scott Adams. And, and Dilbert, if you haven't seen it before it features a a guy who works in an office and he's got a talking dog and the talking dog kind of teases him and his boss is sort of like this pinheaded the the ultimate sort of micromanager and things like that and it's it's a comic strip that makes fun of workplace situations is kind of what it is and at its its height the height of its popularity it was syndicated in several thousand um, newspapers very very popular comic strip it's it's become less 
popular over the years, but things, you know, fall into favor and then fall out of favor. Well, if you haven't been following the story, now Scott Adams, who he's 65 years old, he is the author. He's gotten in trouble before with remarks that some people describe as as racist even if you don't want to view some of the things he's done in the past as racist, it is certainly the height of political incorrectness. And then here's what happened over the weekend. He does a podcast, and in the podcast he has conversations about all sorts of different things. And he decides that he's going to talk about a report, a poll that was done by by Rasmussen, um, and Rasmussen is one of the political polling outfits that, that's out there. And the Rasmussen poll asks people the question, do you think it's okay to be white? All right, that, that's, that's the question. And of the people who are black who respond, 26% apparently say, no, they don't think it's okay to be white. And another like 20 plus percent say that they're not sure. Okay, so that's... That's the background of this. And for reasons that kind of pass understanding, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, decides he's going to jump in on on this and he's going to talk about it. And he starts saying things on his podcast like it's nearly half of all blacks are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not to me. That's a hate group. That's a hate group, and I don't want anything to do with them. And I would say, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I can give to white people is to get the blank away from black people. This is what he's saying. There's no fixing this. You just have to escape, which is why he said he moved to his current neighborhood that has a very low black population. And then it, it kind of goes on, but but you get the idea of this. He says, um, then he goes on to say, that I'm going to back off. I'm I'm going to back off from being helpful to Black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. The only outcome I get is to be called a racist. It makes no sense to help Black Americans if you're white. It's over. I don't think it's worth trying. I'm not saying we should start a war or anything. We should just get away. He said as he continued discussing race and education and other issues. So you you get the the idea of of what he's saying. In response to this, well, the reaction has been overwhelming. And what you have is a number of the major newspaper syndicates that carried the comic strip have have dropped it. Uh, Los Angeles Times dropped it, citing racist comments, saying that uh, Dilbert would be discontinued Monday. San Antonio Express News, USA Today Network, Plain Dealer in Cleveland, the Washington Post. It, it goes on, the Chicago Tribune. It goes on and on and on and on. And the reaction of these newspapers is, look, here, here's the deal. We... We promote and talk about inclusivity, and we are not going to give somebody who thinks these uh, these things and say these various things. We're we're just not going to give them a forum. So whether you want to call it the cancel culture or whatever, we're we're doing away with this. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. See, hey, I want to I want to take this from approach. I was actually talking about this with a couple people this morning. The you know Scott Adams has the right to have his opinion. I think what he said was strikingly and stunningly stupid on on so many different levels, and to get to where he got from some poll that he saw out there it just took so many different leaps of of logic but if he believes this okay he gets to express his opinion the newspapers of course get to react to this i mean that's it's you have a first amendment right to express yourself however you want but the newspapers are saying well first of all this guy's expressing these views that are not consistent with our what our corporate view is and secondly I think what they're expressing also is they're saying, hey, we're we're afraid that there's going to really be a, a backlash and that even if we even if we decided to continue to carry this comic strip, well, there would then be a backlash on us from a number of the are the people who subscribe to the paper or read the paper. So I think they're arguing is that we had no choice but to cancel the strip based on what he said. Our number, 855-616-1620. Here's my question. Do you think the newspapers overreacted to what he did? And do you believe that people 
are going to or would stop reading the comic strip because of the things he said. Now, I don't have a I don't have a horse in this particular race. I haven't read Dilbert in, in years and years. And I do read the funny papers. I, I do. It's just, for whatever reason, it's not one that ever registered with me. He's now talking about the cancel culture. My question is, okay, did he deserve what he got? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. This this controversy involving the creator of, of Dilbert just to me raises so many different questions. Okay, first of all, I, I think saying what he said go, goes beyond just political incorrectness. And, you know, and, and why he chose to... You know, go down this route and say, you know, refer to the people who are black as members of a hate group. Um, and he said, no longer help uh, black Americans. Quote, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the blank away from black people. Okay. I mean, why you would say something like that? And I guess maybe the reason he said it is because he, he means it and believes it. I guess that that's what this is. But at the same time, when you decide to go down that route, I think you have to expect that there are going to be consequences. And, you know, those those consequences are you're, you're going to end up getting canceled. In this case, it's it's hard for I mean, there's no way I'm going to defend what he ended up saying. What I think is intriguing is the question of would this would people would people stop reading the comic because what he, of what he said, and my guess is a significant portion would not. However, I think the newspapers have every right to simply say, look, we, we don't want to be a part of what this guy is spewing. Now, a number of my texters are making the, the point that, well, what if this had been switched around, and what if you had someone who was black that was making you know racist statements themselves? Would it be treated the same? And then the argument is, well, it, it wouldn't have been. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. But I, I do think it is fair to say that when people, white, black, brown, whatever, make racist statements, they deserve to be condemned. Jeff, I agree that the papers have the right to cancel the comic, but this is also the reason why big tech and media shouldn't censor opinions that they disagree with so that people can hear somebody's true character. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? So, yeah, I, I definitely think that he should be condemned. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike, we lost your call. Thank, thank, thanks so for joining us. Um, I, I guess here's the, you know, here's the question. One of our texters makes the point, you know, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences. And, and that's, again, that's one of the things that gets lost in the discussion about the First Amendment a lot of time. The First Amendment says that, that, that government should do nothing to re- restrict the, the right, the freedom of, of speech. But that doesn't mean, as the texter points out, that you don't have consequences from, you know, what you're what you're doing and what you end up saying. And in this particular case, again, why you would why you would choose to why you would choose to go down that route is absolutely completely 100 percent beyond me, because you look at what this guy's saying. It has nothing to do with the comic strip. He's just I mean, he's offering his opinions and he has a right to do it. But you've got to recognize that there are going to be reactions. And in the space uh, for for the media companies that are out there, the newspapers, etc., you know, maybe this is just a situation where it's just it's too hot to handle because, you know, even. While, while all of them have policies about inclusivity and things like that, so it makes it tough to ignore this type of stuff, um, I, I think they're just simply saying, look, this is not – and you see this all the time. You see this with columnists that get dropped from time to time. You see this with reporters or you know uh, journalists who, who get dropped for this. And I admit that to some extent there is a bit of a double standard sometime, and you can make this point that, well – you know, look at what somebody said from the other perspective and how can they continue to have them on the air. And I admit sometimes that there is a double standard. But even if there is a double standard to an extent, that doesn't justify, I think, what Scott Adams did. And so when he made this decision to make these remarks, I, I think he had to understand that there were going to be consequences. To me, the most interesting thing is going to be whether or not this ends 
ends his career because there's all sorts of, I mean, he, he's a cartoonist, and we have this thing called the Internet that's out there, and just because his cartoons no longer appear in a variety of newspapers, it, it doesn't mean that he has to stop doing his cartoons. I mean, he can put Dilbert out on the Internet. He can, you know, charge a fee for it. He could do whatever he wants. And if he does that, it will be interesting to me to see whether or not he's got enough loyal followers that, that don't care about the things that, that he said. But I, I think this, to me, is not the cancel culture run amok. This is a situation where a guy who should have known better, decided to shoot off his mouth and now has to live with some of the effects. So, again, it's easy for me to say because I wasn't a fan of the comic strip to begin with. I, I didn't wasn't a detractor. I just didn't follow it. But, you know, when, when you go down this route, you got to understand that there's going to be consequences for your remarks. And he is finding that out in a big way. Or I should say he's the latest person to find that out in a big way. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. Well, I just this I want to follow up on something we talked about last week. And it's one of these stories that just, again, makes my head want to explode over the last couple of years out in in Wauwatosa. There has been there's a developer, uh, Johnny Vassilo, who's been trying to build a, a 28 story office tower. They're going to call it Drew Tower, and it was going to be on on land on the southwest corner of Mayfair and Blue Mound Road, if, if you can pic- picture that. And so they originally wanted to build a 28-floor office tower, and at the time they proposed this, a couple years ago, they weren't asking for a dime of public money. They were going to build this. Well, you have neighbors in the area who started objecting to this. They're saying, well, we don't, we don't like this because... Um, there's going to be more traffic in the area. I mean, it's Blue Mound Road and Mayfair, so give me a break there. We don't like it because the building's going to throw shadows into people's backyards. I mean, okay, come on. So anyhow, the, the neighbors started objecting. What um, what the developer did is he came back, first of all, said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll scale down the building, and then he came out with a third proposal that finally, you know, he, he didn't need some of the different approvals for. But then what happens is the neighbors say, okay, well, we're not happy with this. We're going to sue. So they end up suing. Meanwhile, the economic conditions over the last couple of years have changed. Interest rates have gone from, what, around 3% to like 7%. So the cost of building one of these giant office towers, well, it might have been affordable three years ago when you could get financing at 3%, but now that it's at 7%, it, it's just not happening. So the developer last week said, I'm done. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a car wash on, on that location. So instead of a $50 million you know, uh, mixed-use building with apartments and retail and office space, we're going to have a car wash. Okay, so now... Everybody in Wauwatosa is unhappy with that. The same neighbors who were objecting to the office building, you know, I'm looking at a story in the Business Journal. They're saying, well, you know, we, we just we, we don't want we don't want this building. We we want to we want a smaller building than they were originally going to propose. But we don't want a car wash. Well, OK, then buy the land yourself. You've got the mayor. He's saying, well, you know, it's, it's not up to us. You know, um, it, it's up for the property owners to propose uses for their land, not city officials. But this is the same Wauwatosa mayor, Dennis McBride, who wasn't wasn't behind or at least wasn't willing to publicly support and push for this building than 28 floor office tower back when it was financially viable. I, I bring this up because it just demonstrates to me this is what happens sometimes when the NIMBYs, the not in my backyards, win. You say, all right, you know, you've got somebody that wants to invest a ton of money in the community, improve the tax base, contribute money that's going to go to the schools and all those sorts of things, and you get a group of neighbors who, and I, I get I get what their concern is. They're parochial. They're like, okay, we live right by this. We we don't want to have the shadows. Okay, but at some point in time, there's got to be some greater good. You have politicians, though, that are reluctant to take on the NIMBYs or whatever. And so finally, you have a developer who just simply says, okay, this isn't going to work anymore. It doesn't make any more economic sense. So fine, you know, you, you fought me on my effort to spend $50 million and develop this. Doesn't make any sense anymore. So now you're going to get a car wash. 
And again, so now it's just kind of amusing to me that the same people who were fighting the office building say, well, we don't want a car wash either. You know, we'd like to have a, a building that's 10 stories tall. Oh, okay, that that's that's wonderful. Like I say, if you want that, buy the land, build your own building that's 10 stories tall. This is what happens when you have a lack of leadership. And in Wauwatosa, you've had a consistent sort of lack of leadership where there's no direction at all, and you have at least some people that are markedly anti-business. Well, we don't want this, we don't want that, we don't want that, and now we certainly don't want a car wash. Well, okay, you had your chance to get the $50 million development. You ended up blowing it. All right, don't sing the blues right now. When we come back... I want to talk about something that's going to happen in the United States Supreme Court tomorrow. AM radio in new cars. And what's going on in baseball this year? All that's coming up. The Wagner, the Wagner Show resumes right after the top of the hour news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. So very glad to have you with us. As Connie was mentioning, spring training baseball, our first weekday game is coming up in less than an hour. So I'll tell you honestly, I just don't I don't know what to make of the Brewers team this year. And so I think it's you're going to have some new faces. And I understand that some people, you know, think they didn't do enough in the off season. I, I think they're clearly making way for some of these players who we've been hearing about for the last several years as being major league ready and I think it's going to I think it's going to be fun to see how they do. The other interesting thing about baseball this year is they have completely and t- totally changed the schedule. Um, for the first time I think in baseball history, they now play a balanced schedule. Each team will play all the other teams in baseball. Remember before it was like they'd have these unbalanced schedules. So it would seem the Brewers, who were in the National League Central, it would seem that they were always playing the Pirates or the Cincinnati Reds or the St. Louis Cardinals or the Chicago Cubs, and that's because they were always playing them. So that they played, you know, they they play them. I don't know what was it like twelve or thirteen games a year, whatever it was. So they were always playing them, and then. They'd have home and home series with the other members of the National League, and then they'd play, you know, a, a limited series of games against the American League teams. That's all changed, and what's happened is the baseball owners have gone to a schedule that is much more like what they do in the NBA, where you play more games against teams in your conference but and your division, but you play, you know, all the teams in the league, and that's what's going to happen, you know, this year. Um, so what will what will be guaranteed is that in any given two year period, you will have the opportunity if you want to attend a game to see all the teams in the league. So that's not like so if they play the New York Yankees in New York one year, then they're going to play um, the Yankees will come to Milwaukee the next year. So I think it's going to be kind of cool. It also, I think, evens things out a little because what happened is if you happen to be in one of the divisions where there was a real bottom feeder, uh, a team that everybody could beat up on, what you could do is kind of artificially to- increase your, your win total because you're always playing the Pittsburgh Pirates, for example. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and then as we're going to talk about a little bit later in the program the other thing is they made some dramatic dramatic rule changes including games and things to speed up the game and we'll discuss that coming up in just a little bit i want to start this hour though by revisiting something that we've talked about once or twice in the past because there's some new developments there is the government wants you to buy electric vehicles Right. The government is providing uh, the taxpayers are providing incentives for people, even people that make a ton of money to buy electric vehicles with tax breaks and things of the like. So we're trying to get people. We've made the decision that the internal combustion engine is bad. And we want to try to do everything we can to sell electric vehicles. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know I, I'm not there yet. I, I just I think that there's too many problems, but I don't begrudge the people that, that want to buy them. I do have issues with the taxpayers subsidizing the purchase of electric vehicles, but that's a topic for another day. One of the issues that arises, as it turns out, with electric vehicles is that there's a problem putting AM radios in the cars because the frequency 
that the AM radios operate on is similar to the frequencies emitted by the electric motors. Now, there's things that the automakers could do to eliminate this problem, you know, whether it's shielding or moving stuff around a little bit, but that costs money. So what's happened is a number of automakers have simply made the decision that they're not going to put AM radios in various various cars. So that's just been the decision. Now, Hyundai, well, they the AM radios are still available with that. Toyota, Toyota is still putting AM radios in its all-electric vehicles. But other manufacturers, like, for example, Mercedes, nope, they're, they're not doing that. BMW, they're not doing it. So you can't get an AM radio in the car. This has generated some controversy, namely the fact that there's, you know, tens of millions of people who listen to AM radio, and one of the big spots where people listen to AM radio is in the car. Now, there's a way around this because most stations, like ours, you you can stream us. So as long as you've got, like, 5G in the car or whatever, you can still, like, listen to WTMJ when you're a car, but not over the traditional AM radio. But here's, here's the other problem, and this is a big story in the Wall Street Journal today. A former head of FEMA... Matter of fact, several former heads of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Act, they're saying it is a huge mistake and the government should not allow cars not to have AM radios. This is what they say. The lack of AM radio and new electric vehicles could cut off drivers from important safety alerts broadcast over AM radio. The government should seek assurances that automakers will maintain AM radio in cars, said seven former Federal Emergency Management Agency administrators in a letter Sunday to the Transportation Department. The issue, they say, is that AM radio serves as a linchpin of the infrastructure behind the Federal National Public Warning System, which provides emergency alert and warning information from FEMA to the public during natural disasters and extreme weather events. When all else fails, radio stations are often the last line of communication that communities have, says the former head of FEMA during the Obama administration. So... Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, obviously, I sort of have a vested interest in this, and I, I, I acknowledge that because I, I understand, I have a pretty good idea over the years as to how people take in radio listening, and one of the big ways that people listen to programs like mine and stations like WTMJ is when you're in your car. And the the while there are ways to do this, you know, via the stream and via 5G, and if you've got Spotify or TuneIn or things like that, the easiest way is simply to, you know, move the cursor to the AM dial and then punch in your preset. So I I think, you know, obviously my first disclosure is I want AM radio available wherever. I believe, I guess, two things. First of all, I do not think consumers are ready to bail on AM radio as of yet. And I think once consumers of these electric vehicles start finding that there are many of these manufacturers who decided to drop AM, I think there's going to be a backlash. But secondly, from the emergency management perspective, you know, is it a good idea to pull AM radios out of cars knowing that oftentimes in times of natural disaster, this is this is the only way that people are going to be able to get information. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. I'm not sure I, how I feel about government intervention in this, but at the same time, I just don't think we're ready to give up AM radio. Are you? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. If you haven't been following this this latest development um, with, with this push for electric vehicles, one of the things that happens is the, the electromagnetic signals that the engine puts out. And look, I don't claim to be a, an automobile engineer, but the electromagnetic signals that the engine puts out are on very similar frequencies to AM radio. And what manufacturers are saying is that um, if we put AM radios in these electric cars, what's going to happen is you're going to get static and you're going to get interference. And rather than have consumers complain about, hey, I don't get clear AM signal in the car, 
their their answer is to just pull the AM their AM radios out of the cars. Now they, they could there are workarounds. I mean, all you have to do is put in some shielding and things like that, but that costs a little bit of money, and they don't want to have to do it. Well, the the latest wrinkle that's been brought in is a number of former heads of FEMA are now lobbying the transportation agent transportation administration, saying, "Hey, look, pulling out AM radios is a really really bad idea because that's." really the last line of communicating with people when it comes to natural disasters and emergencies and things like that. Internet might go out, but, you know, the AM radio is still going to be there, and it's a bad idea to pull AM radios out. Now, I admit I have a a bias in this because, I mean, I work for an AM radio station, and none of this is going to happen overnight, and we're – I still – this idea that even half of people are going to be driving electric cars in the next 10 years, I just don't buy that. 855-616-1620. Nevertheless, I do not think that people are ready to give up their AM radios as a general rule. There are ways, again, you can listen to WTMJ through apps and things like that, but I think this is one, I don't think people are ready yet to give them up. Let's start with John in Mount Pleasant. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'll tell you, I just picked up a new car in January, and it's not electric. And it's the, one of the things my so, uh, salesman told me, he looks right me, looks at me right now, he says, no AM radio. Okay. Um, and so your response I, was? And it, I said, I looked at him and I said, what? That's practically all I listen to. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, yeah. I was there, you know, so I've got to figure out the workaround on the, on the technology level, but it's not just um, electric. It's also, mine's kind of a hybrid, but it's okay. a weird hybrid. It's not like a normal hybrid. Now, well, you were talking maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, John, yeah, thanks maybe. for the call. Maybe, yeah, thanks for the call. It may be, it might be the, the hybrid stuff, too. Um and look, and I, I fully understand. You know, is I, I told this story a while back. I was at a, um, I, I was at a, a show concert, and it was one of these concerts where at the end of the show, like the band wants to turn around, they're going to sell CDs. I don't have a CD player. I don't have a CD player in my car. I don't have a CD player at my house. I don't even think any of my computer. I mean, I, I think somewhere I've got one of those separate drives that I could hook up to the computer and I could put the CD in. But it's like, okay, I, I mean, I kind of like the band, but I'm not going to spend $20 on something that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to play anymore. So CD, I mean, CD players that used to be ubiquitous in cars. Remember, you'd have that. You could put four or five of them in there. That that's gone. And so, you know, maybe it's going to come with that with AM radio. But I don't, I don't think it's there right now. You know, one of our texters says, well, you know. It's um, it's that you know this is this is the whole situation here that um, let's see I, I, AM radio has a shrinking demographic. Well, um, I do believe that much like network TV, AM radio has a limited lifespan. I I'll just tell forty seven million people. I mean that's what the the numbers show, and I think AM radio fills this niche. Now now again there there are workarounds and. Um, if you've got Bluetooth, I mean, I think a lot of people who are buying the new cars, you know, they've got the Apple CarPlay and things like that. And there's ways you can download stuff and you download the app. And, for example, you know, we can, you know, we can, I, I am able, uh, no matter where I am in the country, you know, all you need is your phone. You've got the WTMJ app. And, and I, I can listen to our station from anywhere in the country. So you just have to figure that out. But I, I think I think there's going to be kind of a, a culture shock here. And the thing is, there there are workarounds that are, are out there. And they don't cost that, I mean, they're, they don't cost that much money from what I'm told. It's just that the car manufacturers are... You know, reluctant. Jeff, it's another reason not to buy an electric car. They're simply not ready for prime time. Jeff, my wife's 2020 Chevrolet Traverse, not electric or hybrid, has static when listening to 620 WTMJ, makes me not want to drive her car 
ever. Jeff, I've been driving EVs for nine years. I have zero issue without AM radio since I'm able to stream WTMJ from my car. I also get plenty of emergency alerts on my mobile phone. Jeff, I listen to AM radio at least 50% of the time in the car, if not more, and I like the convenience of only having to push one or two buttons to get that source. I don't think I plan on buying an electric vehicle anytime in the future, so hopefully this will not affect me. Jeff, I think this is, um, I, I'm listening to you now about AM radios. It's, is that why my AM radio does not work in my car? I have a hybrid Toyota. It, it could it could very well be. Jeff, my aftermarket LED headlights interfere with FM radio, as does a lithium battery from cordless tools. To get rid of AM radio is just not right. Pretty soon there will be no radio at all. Well, we're we're not going anywhere. That's, that's, that's the reality. Jeff, I listen to TMJ on 103.3 FM. Yes, um, we, you know, we, we do have have that repeater and we are there but that's that signal is nowhere near as strong as that's nowhere near as strong as the the tmj signal which as you know blankets a good portion of wisconsin and then a number of other states as well um let's see jeff all you have to do is download the station app and then bluetooth yeah i mean i think there's no problem with that. You can, in fact, do it. Jeff, I absolutely want to keep AM radio in my car. My husband and I have two electric gas electric cars. We've never had a problem with AM radio when we're driving the electric mode. Thank you for the show. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you've got these different elements that are there. I just bring this up because as we're as we're rushing to... I don't know, make these various changes. There's things that you're going to have to give up. And I appreciate that maybe AM radio isn't the biggest deal. But again, I know from our audience, I know from the demographics, that there is a convenience factor that comes with this. And I think there's going to be a degree of shock. Now, whether or not the government needs to mandate that or not, that's a whole that's a whole different discussion um, that has to be based on where, how do you communicate with people in times of emergencies? And if if the Internet is down, if, you know, you're, you're not able to, you know, hook up and send these notifications and people need this information, if the Internet isn't working, how how do you communicate with people? And the one thing we know for sure is that AM radio is always going to be there. So, you know, maybe you're going to see Congress step in. Don't know. But right now, just know that if you buy electric cars from certain uh, car makers, you're not going to get AM radio in the cars at this point in time. You'll have to figure out the workaround. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I don't know that it changes anything, but this next story is just one of these classic examples of people who were just sure that they knew something just absolutely positive that they knew something and it had to be this way, and then it turns out that it's maybe it's different. Now, w- one of the big disputes and discussions has been where did where did COVID come from in the first place? You know, how did this how did this happen? And there's a, a number of people and a number of agencies who came to the conclusion that well, this is just something that you know, just it naturally developed and um it was natural transmission and there's nobody to blame nothing like that right and then there's been this other theory out there that no what happened is covid this came from a a leak in china a laboratory leak and remember and again it, it doesn't really change the fact that you know we had covid in the worldwide pandemic but it was sort of instructive that people out there who said okay this this came from China, and this was in a lab, and it leaked. We're just routinely ridiculed. Oh, no, no, that's not it. This is natural transmission. How dare you say this? Well, now it turns out that lots of really smart people, based on the evidence, believe that it was a laboratory leak. This was a story that the Wall Street Journal had um, over the weekend. The U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID pandemic 
most likely arose from a laboratory leak. The Energy Department was previously undecided on how the virus emerged, but now apparently they they have come to the conclusion that they believe that the virus likely spread via a mishap at a Chinese laboratory. Now, the FBI agrees with that. There's other intelligence agencies that still believe that it was natural transmission. I, I don't know what it was. But I point this out just simply to say that for people a couple years ago who were saying, hey, this this came out of China and this was a leak in a laboratory that somehow got out. And all these people who were just made fun of and, oh, no, you're being you know, you're just trying to blame China. And, you know, this is no you know, this is not something that they could partially or even probably be responsible for. And the truth is. At least more and more agencies who are looking at this are saying, you know, all those people who say this was a leak at a Chinese laboratory, they were right. Now, again, it doesn't change the fact that you had the worldwide pandemic and dealing with COVID. But a lot of times we think we knew stuff. And when it came to COVID, we were positive we knew stuff. And now it turns out that maybe we really didn't know as much as we thought we did. WTMJ breaking news time is 1.30 p.m. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, very glad to have you with us. Brewers baseball from Arizona coming up in about 20 minutes or so. Then I'm back, full three-hour show tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit about baseball. If, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know I am a huge baseball fan. I've got a 20-pack of tickets that my buddy and I go to see the, the Brewers every year. Love baseball. But one of the, the beefs I have had over the years is the game is just too long. Now, I, I am a baseball purist. I, I get it. I understand that. But these games that you go to on, on weeknights where it's three hours or three and a half hours, it does not hold people's attention span. And all the standing around, it just it drives you nuts. I also think it's fan-unfriendly because I'll go to these games and you'll see families that bring kids. And on, on a Monday or Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday night, on a work night, you, you can't the game starts at 7 o'clock, and by like 9.15, the kids are getting tired and antsy, and you're only in the fourth inning, and the game's been going on for two hours. They have to figure out ways to speed up the game. So this year, it is, it is a completely different animal, and you saw that over the weekend. This year, they have implemented a pitch count, and here's how it worked out. The way this works is that players... Pitchers now have 20 seconds to throw their next pitch when there are runners on base and 15 seconds when the bases are empty. So pitcher gets the ball, and instead of scratching themselves and stretching and walking around, they got 15 seconds to throw the ball. And if they don't, there's an automatic ball that is called. A catcher needs to be in the catcher's box ready with nine seconds left. So catcher can't, like, walk around and stretch or whatever. Um, If either the pitcher or the catcher fails to comply, the umpire calls an automatic ball. Batters, batters need to be in the batter's box ready to swing with eight seconds left. If they aren't, the umpire calls a strike. So none of this, I'm going to step out, I'm going to adjust my batting glove, I'm going to reposition my jock strap, all those, none of, you know, that, that's, no, you got to be in there and you got to be ready to go. Now, over the weekend, um, 11 out of the 16 day spring training games that, that were played on, on Saturday, get this, they ended in around two hours and 30 minutes. Um... That's about a half hour faster than the regular pace. One Sunday game ended at two hours and seven minutes. So you, you don't have these three and three and a half hour things. It, it's two and a half hours, etc. Now, there's been a little bit of controversy because, for example, um, one of the games ended in a in a very weird sort of fashion it was the game between boston and uh, boston red sox and atlanta tied six to six two outs in the bottom of the ninth bases loaded three two count and the pitcher throws the ball and it's a ball the guy thinks he's going to walk and win the game it turns out he wasn't ready within that eight seconds and so it's an automatic strike and that's how the game ends and everybody's confused so there's some people saying okay how is this going to work out but there's no question by putting in a pitch clock what you do is you move the game along 
and you stop all the dilly-dallying that um, sometimes just becomes overwhelming. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, normally I leave the sports-related topics to my colleagues and my teammates down the hall at ESPN. But I'm so very intrigued by this as somebody who goes to a lot of games and listens to a bunch of games on the radio and watches games on television. This is, I think, arguably the most significant change that they have made in baseball in years and years and years. And it is definitely going to change the fan experience. Speeding up the game by putting in and enforcing a pitch clock. Is it a good move or a bad move? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Poor Jeff Wagner, right after this. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. If you haven't been following the baseball in the offseason, there's a number of rule changes they made, including many of these rules changes designed to speed up the play of the game because, and one of our texters said, well, you know, football games take three or three and a half hours, but baseball is not football. That's just the, the reality of this. And I think, you know, one of the things that is hurting baseball and its attendance moving forward is the games are just too long. One of the texters said, well, yeah, don't take kids to night games, which is, I mean, I, I, I don't know that that would be the, the solution that the people who own baseball teams want to have. Don't take kids to night games. No, I mean, the answer is what you need to do is speed up the game to make it more exciting and interesting. And if you're going to appeal to a younger generation where, I mean, they're used to, I mean, immediate response, having these games that just drag on and on and on, where there's no action, where it's just the player, the pitcher standing there holding the ball and holding the ball, and he steps off the mound, and he gets back on the mound, and then you get the catcher that steps out, and you get the batter that steps out and does the Ryan Braun thing where you adjust the gaps, where nothing is happening. I mean, there's nothing dramatic about that. And if you're going to have an appeal for you know future generations, you've got to figure out a way of speeding up the game. Now, have they done it too much with this pitch clock? Well, I guess that's something that time will tell. But essentially, with a runner on base, 20 seconds to pitch the ball. 15 seconds when there's no runner on base. So you get the ball back, and boom, you got to go. And the batter's got to be ready um, eight seconds before you know, the pitch clock expires. And if the batter's not ready, it's an automatic strike. If the pitchers don't throw the ball in the prescribed time, well, it's an automatic ball. Um, you know, no problem at all. Um, let's see, Jeff, I stopped going to games when they brought politics in, but I used to go to 10-plus games a season, and I think this is a great idea. They need to speed up the game. Capital letters, Jeff, I love... The rule change, and I think the players do too. It not only makes the game shorter, which was needed, but also makes it more fun to watch. Well, well, right, because stuff is, is going on. I mean, instead of just sitting there and nothing happening, at least in football, I mean, I understand that there's time between the plays and stuff when the clock is running, but... Th- there's, in baseball, there's just so darn much standing around. Jeff, I think it's a great... Uh, a great move. Jeff, I think only Brett Suter will have success against the clock. Jeff, to me, it's really irritating when they step out of the batter's box to redo their gloves and never even swing at a pitch. Jeff, to me, I think it's a little quick. Um, however, years ago, I would take my son on a weeknight, and we'd have a 90-minute drive home, and we would typically leave at 9.30 or when the sausages ran, whichever came first, and it was usually about that time. But again, that's six innings and two and a half hours. I'm also interested to see how this affects stadium sales because they're going to have an hour less at this time to sell stuff. Um, well, I think, you've, I think you have to figure this out. And and maybe maybe you need to expand the, the clock a little bit. But this idea of saying we got to move this game along, I think it's going to be a really good move for baseball. James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. 
Welcome back. That's just about it for me. Brewers baseball coming up in just a few minutes. You know, a number of people are, are texting in and they're saying, well, you know, in, in, we agree with the fact that the games need to speed up when it comes to baseball. One of the other things that they should do is they should look at, at cutting down the season. You know, 162 games, way too long. Um, you know, you hear that about basketball, too. I mean, the, the NBA season is 82 games and it starts, it seems to me, what does it start in October? And then, you know, it runs through the NBA championship series probably being played in June. I, I will say this. I, I think just from the economics of it, the chances of Major League Baseball cutting back the length of the schedule is kind of slim to none. And slim is on a bus heading out of town. Why? Because uh, salaries and revenues and things like that. And, you know, you start eliminating games and the question becomes, okay, where, how are you going to make up that revenue? And I, I guarantee you that the players aren't going to want to take, you know, less money. And I guarantee you that the owners aren't going to want to make less money and less opportunities to get people in the stands to buy souvenirs and beer and things like that. So I, I think I, for, I appreciate the sentiment for people who say, well, it's, you know, Major League Baseball, the season is, is too long. And I mean, this year the Brewers open in Chicago on, what is it, March 30th? I think it's a Thursday. They open in, in Chicago on March 30th. And there's some people who say, well, why should we be playing outside, you know, in Chicago, outdoors, you know, in, in March? Because don't you know what the weather is going to be like? But that's just the nature of the schedule. And so while I sem- sympathize with people who say, well, maybe the schedule's too long, I don't think you're going to see any changes with that. Hey, I started off the program. By just mentioning the fact that uh, the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewage District had has done another dumping, um, I don't know how big this was, but uh, the, I mean, here, here's just the reality. Apparently, the Jones Island Water Reclamation Facility had reached 100 percent capacity. The deep tunnel was at 77 percent capacity. The South Shore Water Reclamation Facility was at 94 percent, and so. For everybody who gets upset with the fact that you're going to have this dumping into Lake Michigan, I understand this, and maybe we'll talk more in depth about this tomorrow, but the reality is don't blame MMSD. It's They are playing the hand that they were dealt. When we made the decision decades ago not to separate the combined sewers from the sanitary sewers, when we made that decision, we, we guaranteed that we were stuck with the deep tunnel, and you can just never build a tunnel deep enough when you have weather events like we're experiencing today, when you get monumental rain, it's just the trade-off that we ended up making. Okay, that's it for me. Milwaukee Brewers uh, Spring Training Baseball coming up in just a couple minutes. I'm back 12 noon tomorrow when we do it all again. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.